Well, good morning, IBC. Once again, I want to just say it is, once again, it's just really good to be with you. It really is. And for those who are participating via live stream, also very good that you're participating. Um, I want to invite you to turn to your, in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 17. And as Michelle already kind of introduced for us, we're going to be kind of Again, just moving into this next scene of Jesus' ministry, specifically what's classically known as the transfiguration. Uh, While you're turning there, let me just give you kind of a quick uh, review of where we're coming from. And you might recall, if you've been with us the last few weeks, in Matthew chapter 16, we see that Peter, uh, through divine revelation, is the first to acknowledge that Jesus is the Christ, and even is praised by Jesus himself because he's like, only, he's like, Peter, only my Father in heaven could give you that kind of revelation. This isn't something that you kind of came up with on a whim. Only my Father could have let you know that I am the Christ. So he praises him. But also in that very same conversation, we see that he goes from a mouthpiece of divine revelation to being a mouthpiece of Satan. All in the same conversation. All in the same interaction. And he says, no, Lord, you must not go and suffer and die because that's what he's saying. Like, he starts saying from that point on, I must go to Jerusalem. I must suffer at the hands of the religious leaders. I must die, but I will also rise again. And Peter says, far be it from me, Lord. That'll never happen to you. And so here we have Peter praising Jesus for who he is, acknowledging him that he is the Christ, which means Messiah or the anointed one from God, and at the same time, does not understand what that actually means. How often times for us, right? We, we can say the right things, but not actually know what we're saying. We can, we, we can spit out the right terminology, but then wonder, do we really know what we're saying when we say it? Well, Jesus explains very clearly after he rebukes Peter's rebuke, and uh, Jesus says this, if anyone was to come after me, this is what he must do to follow me. In other words, if anyone wants to be my disciple, if, if you, maybe to put it in common day language, if you want to be a Christian, then this is what you must do. And he gives us three very clear, blunt descriptions as to what we must do in order to be a Christian. The first is this, to deny yourself. To deny yourself means an absolute surrender of your will to the will of God the Father. Secondly, Jesus says, not only must you deny yourself, but you must take up your cross. The cross was an instrument of death. In other words, it was a willingness, it was a resolve in one's mind and heart and soul that they were willing to suffer and even die for the ultimate purpose of gospel advancement. Everything for the sake of God, for the sake of Christ, for the sake of gospel movement. And thirdly, we see that Jesus says, and you must follow me. To follow me means to obey me. Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you must obey me, no matter the cost. And so we have really kind of this kind of sobering, very clear, but high bar for what it means to be a Christian. And then Jesus kind of says at the very end of Matthew 16, which we didn't discuss, but we're going to highlight it now. At the very end of Matthew 16, verse 28, Jesus says this, I tell you the truth, Some standing here right now will not die before they see the Son of Man coming into his kingdom. Now what in the world 
is Jesus talking about here? Some of you standing right now won't even die until you see the Son of Man coming into his kingdom. What is he, what is he referring to? What, is he, what does he mean by that? Well, I believe that our passage at the beginning of Matthew 17 is what Jesus is referencing. This is what he is talking about. And so let's read our text here in verse seven, uh, chapter 17, verses 1 through 13, and then we'll draw application and observation from there. Again, I'm reading from the, the New Living Translation, but I oftentimes will quote in the ESV. Six days later, Jesus took Peter and the two, and the two brothers, James and John, and led them up a high mountain to, to be alone. Luke's Gospel says they went up to pray. As the men watched, Jesus' appearance was transformed so that his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as light. And suddenly, Moses and Elijah appeared and began talking with Jesus. Peter exclaimed, Lord, it's wonderful for us to be here. You will want, uh, if you want, I'll make three shelters as memorials, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. But even as he spoke, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my dearly loved son who brings me great joy. Listen to him. The disciples were terrified and fell face down on the ground. Then Jesus came over and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. And when they looked up, Moses and Elijah were gone, and they saw only Jesus. And as they went back down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. Then his disciples asked him, Why do the teachers of religious law insist that Elijah must return before the Messiah comes? Jesus replied, Elijah is indeed coming first to get everything ready. But I tell you, Elijah has already come. But he wasn't recognized, and they chose to abuse him. And in the same way, they will also make the Son of Man suffer. Then the disciples realized he was talking about John the Baptist. One of the habits I have gotten into um, this past year or so is at my, you know, whatever designated lunchtime is on any typical day is I'll take a walk around town and I'll just kind of make a lap and just kind of stretch the legs. And part of my typical uh, route is I go by that new convention center that is being built. And it's really fun to watch the progression of that convention center being built. I mean, I've watched it uh, from kind of the ground up, you know, they were surveying, they had a bunch of equipment there, then all of a sudden the ground is getting ready, and then they brought in this crane, and they had these massive steel tubes that they were pounding down, these pilings they were pounding down all the way to the bedrock as kind of necessary supports to complete a foundation for this very large building to be erected. And uh, what I love about them, my, my route is like, they're, they're, by the way, they're making great progress. I'm not sure what's happening with the hotel. That seems to be at a standstill right now. But, uh, but the convention center, they're like, you know, full blaze ahead. They are just like, everything, every time I walk back, I'm like, whoa, that part's done. And whoa, they got this structure there done. And sometimes I'll just be like nibbling on something, just watching them, you know, like a little kid going, this is so cool. And, but the reason why I share that is because when I was watching them uh, put the pilings in, 
it was interesting. The crane has this like kind of massive hammer attached to it, and you're like, there's a 50, 60 foot like steel tube. I'm like, how in the world is that going to get down? And that crane just goes tink, 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 and you just see this piling just get driven into the ground all the way down to where it's almost near grade. And I'm like, that is incredible. Every stroke, every pound that goes down a few more feet until it reaches, reaches is it, its intended depth. As I think about, you know, my, my daily observations of walking around downtown, I can't help but also connect the parallel to what Jesus is driving home with his disciples. You see, as I was preparing for my message here t- t- this morning, I, I, uh, I'll be honest with you, in all transparency, I was like, man, it seems like Jesus is making the same point. And I've already preached this point a couple of times, I think. So it's a different scene with the same point. What, what am I supposed to, how do I make this different in a sense? And then I realize I'm not supposed to. In fact, there's a reason why Jesus is driving home the same point over and over and over and over again. In other words, much like the pilings getting pounded in the ground until they reach its intended depth, Jesus is driving home an essential foundational truth for our understanding, a foundational component or realization or understanding so that we might better know him, so that we might more fully understand who he is. Because brothers and sisters, if we don't really grasp in its most deepest or fullest sense who Jesus is, then everything else we do has a very shabby, uh, deteriorating uh, foundation to it. In other words, what Jesus wants us to understand with crystal clear certainty is that he is the Christ, that he is the Son of God. He's not just some historical figure. He's not just a good teacher. He's not just a miracle worker. No, he is God in human flesh. And the reason why that matters so much for you and for me is this. When we see Jesus in that light, there are some radical implications. There's there's a significant connection that is made when we understand that Jesus is God's Son. So this morning we're going to be talking about Four more proofs, four more confirmations, four more pieces of evidence as to why Jesus is in fact the Son of God. And, and as I was re- wrestling with this going like, will people be interested in this? Because we've already talked about it. I believe that we must come back to the point that Jesus continually comes back to. In other words, it matters to you and it matters to me. It matters for everyone because the deeper our understanding of Jesus the more resilient our faith. The more we are convinced, the more we begin to grasp that Jesus is the Son of God, I believe that it it makes our faith that much more resilient because the more we know Jesus, the more we realize that it is His sustaining power and grace that gives us endurance for this life. I love what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, for example. Remember when Paul says, right in the very beginning, he says, so I don't lose heart. And he kind of bookends his whole chapter, and I don't lose heart 
Paul, out of anybody, had reason to lose heart. He had reason to give in to discouragement. He had reason to throw in the towel. He endured a lot, but he says, I don't. Why? Because he says in verse 7, we have this treasure, which is the gospel, in these fragile jars of clay, which is us, to show that the all-surpassing power, that power is the ability to endure and not lose heart, is from God and not from us. In other words, what Paul is saying to us, he's saying, the reason why I, I, I don't give in to discouragement or the, the reason why I don't uh, uh, succumb to the pressures around me is because I, the, the sustaining power of God is giving me the ability to endure. In and of myself, I am weak. I'm just like a jar, fragile, uh, worthless piece of clay. But I have this all-surpassing greatness, this, the gospel of Jesus, the good news of Jesus Christ That is what sustains me. It's not me, it's God in me. But if I don't know Jesus as he really is, then it's very easy for my faith to begin to waver. It's very easy for my faith to begin to falter. So just as the deeper pilings get, just as the the deeper the pilings get pounded into the earth, for a stronger foundation, so also the deeper or more fully we grow in our understanding of Jesus, the greater our endurance, the greater our confidence. I think there's a second reason why it's important that we come back to this repeated point of reference. It's not just for our endurance, but when we understand who Jesus is, that he is the son of the living God, it impacts how we follow him. It, it influences greatly the manner in which we follow Jesus. You see, remember, our, our perception of Jesus significantly influences how we listen to him. Again, if, if our perception of Jesus is just a, a good teacher out of many, then we'll regard him as such. We'll say, well, Jesus among, there are many good teachers in the the history of the human race. And yes, I should pay attention because he was a very influential person. But if he is just that, we will regard him as such. But if Jesus is in fact the son of God, if he is God in human flesh, then that again radically influences how we follow. Remember A.W. Tozer when he says this, what comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes to your mind and my mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us because what we think about God ultimately leads us into the quality or the kind of worship of God. You know, my kids, there's two of them right here. I'm going to call you out a little bit. So sometimes I get this kind of, uh, I, I I get the eavesdrop on conversations and sometimes I'll hear them kind of uh, disputing about something and one will say to the other you need to do this and sometimes I hear this response you're not the boss you're not mom or dad and that's true and so that's their justification like you can't tell me what to do we're peers right but Sometimes we ask one of our kids, hey, can you go tell so-and-so to do this or to, to get that? 
And then they come down saying, mom said, or dad said, and then fill in the blank. And then all of a sudden, what they say holds weight. Not because of the messenger, but because I'm delivering a message from somebody else, from the one who actually is the boss. In other words, when I come in the name of mom or dad, all of a sudden what I say does hold significance. Now, they may not listen, of course, but there are greater consequences for not listening or choosing to ignore what mommy or daddy had said. And I believe in a very similar manner, it is of vital importance that we become fully convinced that Jesus is God's Son. That what He says is God Himself speaking. Because if Jesus is God's Son, that means He is our Lord and our King. If Jesus is the Son of God, it radically influences the way in which you follow Him and listen to Him and ultimately surrender to Him. So it is important that we come back to this necessary point of reference. It is important that we drive this home, the, the, kind of, the, the spiritual piling, so to speak, to, to make this truth so crystal clear in our minds and our hearts that we do not veer away from it because our faith is founded upon this truth. So that being said, Jesus, in this scene, we have four more evidences, four more confirmations about who Jesus is, that he is, in fact, the son of the living God. He's already been telling people, this is who I am, and now he's showing or proving that, I want to show you that I am actually who I say I am. And he does so by telling Peter, James, and John to come up to this mountaintop uh, away from the rest of the disciples, away from the crowds, and as they go up, as Luke says, to pray, something happens. And that is our first confirmation that we see what's called classically the transfiguration of Jesus. Now to be transfigured, uh, it, there's, a, there's a lot of interpretations or commentary of what that means. We oftentimes get the word metamorphosis from the word transfigured, and you know the word metamorphosis. Metamorphosis means to change or to transform, right? Probably the most classic illustration is where a caterpillar turns into a butterfly. And so the caterpillar, at, 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 I guess a known time to the caterpillar, uh, develops this cocoon and sits there kind of in this dormant state for a while, but actually things are going on, and then it blossoms into this butterfly. There's a complete transformation of that little creature. That's what's called metamorphosis. Now, it's not quite the same as transfiguration, but it gives us a picture as to what is taking place here. In the case of Jesus, we see that Jesus still looked like himself. He didn't change into some other kind of creature necessarily, but his appearance changed. He still looked human. He still looked like himself, but, listen to this, he was in his glorified self. So even though Jesus was still the Son of God, that's who he was in his earthly form, we know that at the resurrection of Christ, when he ascends, when one day he will come back again, this is his glorified state. So we, with what Peter, James, and John get a preview of is, is they get to see Jesus in his glorified state. He's radiating the glory. It says that his face was showing like the sun and that his clothes became as white as light. In fact, when you look at 1 Peter chapter 1, we see that Peter kind of harkens back to this, 
this scene, this remembrance, this event that took place that he got to participate in. And he says, we did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He's not referencing post-resurrection Jesus. He's referencing the, the glorified state of Jesus prior to the crucifixion. In other words, you know, Peter's saying, Jesus, you're the Christ, but you can't suffer and die. That makes no sense. And Jesus says, this is who I am. This is what you can anticipate. As I was, as I was reflecting on, in a sense, the small description or the short description here, it, it, it kind of made my, my thoughts go to Revelation chapter 1. In Revelation chapter 1, verses 12 through 16, we see John, the apostle, who was there on the Mount of Transfiguration. We see that he also has a vision, a fuller vision of Jesus in his glorified state. Listen to this description here. I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. This is John speaking. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe and with golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze and and refined in the furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Whew. If that doesn't kind of stir something within you, um, I don't know, maybe, maybe that kind of says something about you. But when I, when I read a description of that, I'm like, whoa, that's, that's Jesus? Wow. And we see that these disciples, these three disciples, were privileged to see Jesus in his glorified state. In fact, this particular experience had such an impact even though they didn't still quite fully grasp it we see that when Jesus actually did die when he fulfilled what he was about to what he was going to do and when he did rise again and they were they were scared and kind of hiding away and Jesus walks through the wall and he appears to them and then the Holy Spirit later comes upon them they are a force to be reckoned with I believe there's actually a reason why Peter, James, and John, kind of the inner circle of the disciples, were brought up to that because Jesus was preparing them. He was going to be using them as a tool in his Father's hand to begin the church. We see Peter, as was already promised, was going to be kind of the first voice of the church. James and John, James was considered the, the leader of the church in Jerusalem. John was the only one who was not martyred but exiled to Patmos who gave us the book of Revelation. God had some very intentional or unique ministries planned for these gentlemen and so they needed to be fully convinced that he was in fact the Christ. Brothers and sisters, it's imperative that you and I know God, that we grow in our understanding of God. I'm always reminded of Proverbs 1, 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fact is you and I will only fear God reverently when we understand Him rightly. We can only honor God humbly when we know Him accurately. 
the disciples got a preview of the glorified Christ. And it changed their life. It was one of many evidences that I am who I am, says Jesus. I am who I say I am, the Son of the living God. But there's more to that because in this, in this encounter, in this experience, we see a second confirmation and that is the appearance of Moses and Elijah. Now Moses here represents the law because as you probably remember back in the Old Testament, Moses was the one who God chose to lead the people of Israel out of slavery and into the promised land. And we see there was a time as they traversed through the wilderness that there was a, they came to the base of Mount Sinai and Moses is kind of hark, or beckoned up to the top of the mountain. He gets a glimpse of God's backside. He comes down. His face is still radiating, still, still kind of glowing from that encounter. And he comes down with the Ten Commandments etched in stone. The point is this. Moses represents the law of God because the law of God was given through Moses. And here he is now on the scene standing right next to Jesus. And on the other side, we see Elijah the prophet who is really a kind of a, a token representative of the prophets. Now all the prophets had a, 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 a God-given ministry, but Elijah fulfilled this role. We see, as we talked about even last week, Elijah was a person who... Um, who was a voice for God and he, he proclaimed the name and the glory of God or the one true God to a godless people. So here, if you can envision the, the scene here, Jesus is standing there and then all of a sudden Moses and Elijah, one on either side, are standing next to Jesus and the point is this, that Jesus is the fulfillment of both the law and the prophets. Recall what Jesus even said in Matthew 5.17, Right? The Sermon on the Mount, he says, do not think or don't get this idea that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I didn't come to get rid of them or to replace them as if they were null and void. No, I came to fulfill the law and the prophets. And in other words, the law and the prophets, everything pointed to Jesus it was all about Jesus in the first place. It was all directed towards him. So in effect, when we, when we see Moses and Elijah next to Jesus, we can almost kind of, as they're conferring with one another, we can basically almost kind of eavesdrop on their conversation and they're saying this to these disciples, this is what we've been talking about. This is what our ministry was all about. This is what we've been saying all along. This is the one we've been pointing you to. It's all on Jesus. This is the one. Don't miss it. And yet, Peter does. Peter doesn't still quite get it. In fact, he's seeing this all transpire before him and he offers a suggestion. I love how he, first of all, says, Lord, it is really good that we're here right now. I don't know how you interpret that, but it's, it is kind of, you're like, hmm, Lord, it's good that we're here witnessing all this. <laughs> it's almost like, aren't you glad that I'm with you right now? And he says, you know, I think we should make some tents, one for you and one for, uh, and one for Moses and one for Elijah. If you want me to do this, I'll make this right now. And of course, without realizing it, what Peter was suggesting was that he was placing Jesus on par with both Moses and Elijah. So even though Peter was beginning to grasp 
the significance. I mean, he, he already acknowledged that, Jesus, you are the Christ, but without realizing he's still not quite getting it. That piling is still being pounded in. That truth that Jesus is not just one of many good teachers and one of many holy men, so to speak. He's not just one of many saints. He is the Son of God. Peter also doesn't realize in his suggestion that he's actually asking Moses and Elijah and Jesus to stay. In other words, it's not about Jesus, what he just said, I must go to Jerusalem. He's like, no, let's stay. This is a good thing. What we're experiencing right now, this is good. Let's keep doing this, whatever this is. In other words, let's not go to Jerusalem and suffer and die. But it is interesting when you look at Luke's gospel, you discover what they're actually talking about. And again, Peter's kind of looking on, right? He's not really a part of the conversation. He's kind of interjecting himself, but he's not really a part of the conversation. What we see is that Moses and Elijah and Jesus, they're, they're kind of powwowing together, and they're actually talking about Jesus' departure. They're talking about everything that is going to transpire very soon, that Jesus is going to suffer, he is going to die, he is going to rise again. This is, they're talking about God's redemptive plan through the Messiah. And so we see that Jesus, though Peter doesn't quite recognize it still, Moses and Elijah do. And they realize or they confer that Jesus is God's answer to our sin problem. That Jesus, his purpose in being here right now at that time was to fulfill a global rescue mission of divine proportions. It was to save the world from their sin through his own death, resurrection, ascension, and promised return. And to really drive the point home, God the Father steps in. God the Father speaks up. A voice from God, voice, a voice from heaven speaks going, you know what, you're seeing all this, let me just confirm, let me put the exclamation mark to all of it. In verse 5, even as he, he, that is Peter, spoke, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, this is my dearly loved son who brings me great joy. Listen to him. Notice the humor here in verse 5, right? Peter's still speaking. He's offering his suggestions. And there's this, this, this cloud, this, this Shekinah glory cloud over, envelops them, and a voice from this cloud speaks, Basically interrupting Peter mid-sentence. Like, Peter, stop talking. Let me talk. Peter, enough with the suggestions. Let me just say once and for all, let me just say very matter-of-factly, this is my son. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Look at God's validation of his son. It's not just a validation like, yeah, he belongs to me. We're one and the same. Like, we're, we're family here. But he's like, this is the son in whom I love, whom I cherish, who, he goes on to say, who I am well pleased. I find great joy and pleasure in. Can I just take a quick rabbit trail? This is how God the Father views his son. And this is also how the son views you. You see, Jesus, yes, had a unique relationship with his father as the son of God. 
But we must not miss the point that Jesus also feels this way about you. You know, we can, we were, Pastor Mike and I were just chatting a little bit even this week and how easy it is to go, yes, I am a son or I am a daughter of the king, but you're not just that. You're not just a child because God says it so. You are a beloved child. You are a beloved daughter, a beloved son in whom God finds great pleasure in. You see, one is very relational. The other is very kind of pragmatic. It's not just that we are supernaturally biological or something. No, God says, I love you. I find great delight in you. God finds great joy in loving you. We see that in his relationship with his son and now as his children, we also have that same status. Well, because God the Father speaks, and I've got to wrap this up very quickly, we see that there's a divine exhortation. This is my son, the one in whom I love and who I find great pleasure in him. Now here's the command. Listen to him. Listen to him. In other words, if he says he must go to Jerusalem and suffer and die and rise again for the the redemption of the world, then listen to him. Accept it. Stop battling. Stop arguing. Stop resisting. Just listen to him. Even if you don't understand fully, listen. Well, obviously it got their attention because when the voice from heaven uh, spoke, they were struck with great fear and they're falling on their faces, which by the way, when everybody, anyone encounters God, that's usually the normal reaction. There's only one proper reaction is a fall on your face. I'm not worthy. And then Jesus in compassion touches them and says, don't fear. It's okay, get up. And they walk down the hill we see they start discussing what they just experienced. They're probably processing everything that just happened before them and they're, they're starting to be a little confused about their own theology a little bit because they're like, wait a second, I thought, I thought the Messiah couldn't come until Elijah came, and, but, but Elijah doesn't come, so how can you be the Messiah? Again, they're, they're wrestling. They're grappling honestly. It's good, actually. And Jesus clarifies their, their theology by saying, Elijah does come. He did come. And you rejected him too, much like you will reject the Son of Man. Of course, finally the light turns on, the connection is made, and we see that, that, the, that the prophecy in Malachi chapter 3 where the messenger would come and prepare the way of the Lord, and, and Malachi chapter 4 where Elijah the prophet will, will appear before the great and awesome day of the Lord, all that is fulfilled because that was fulfilled through John the Baptist. So then they're all of a sudden going, oh, so we have the fulfillment of prophecy is what we're getting at. That's our fourth confirmation. It's the fulfillment of prophecy. That what was said would happen actually did happen. It's just almost everyone did not have eyes to see. So who is Jesus? Jesus, remember the question, who do you say that I am? Well, Peter says, Jesus, you're the Christ, the Son of God. And to drive that point home even further, Jesus, 
gives them a glimpse of his glory. And even Moses and Elijah, two very respected people of, the, of Israel, they confirm that truth as well by their very presence. Then God the Father himself speaks and says, this is my son. And look, it's, it just so happens to be a fulfillment of prophecy. So that question I asked at the beginning, why does this matter? Why keep coming back to this same point? Why keep coming back to the point of who is Jesus? Because until you know Jesus for who he is, only then will you follow him as he requires. You see, brothers and sisters, if we, to, for us to follow him as he expects, we must know him as he is. To listen to him and obey as he, as he expects, we must understand clearly that he is, in fact, not just another person, but he is God. And therefore, he is king and he is Lord. One commentator said it this way, and I thought it was very succinct and apropos. They said, you become like what you behold. You become like what you behold. Are we beholding King Jesus for who he is? Is he a mere man? Is he merely just a prophet? Or is he King and Lord? But because Jesus is the Son of God, I think it does require a response from you and from me. And the first response is a response, is really a call to remember, to remember our Savior. And that's what we're going to do right now as a church family. Very quickly, we're not going to go into a time of reflection. I pray that you've already been reflecting. But right now, we have the opportunity to remember. Again, Jesus is already saying, this is what I came to do. Yes, I have healed the sick and I've raised the dead. I've done all these things and I've been preaching a message of repentance, but this is my ultimate purpose in coming was to die so that you could live. Was to take on your guilt so that you could be innocent. And so Jesus says to his disciples, the eve of his death, don't forget what I've done for you. And so, brothers and sisters, 2,000 years later, we continue to remember through the sacrament of communion. Jesus took the bread and he broke it and he says, this bread represents my body, which is broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. Let's eat together. In the same way, Jesus took the cup And he says, this cup represents my blood which is poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. Drink this in remembrance of me. Let's drink together. Because Jesus is the Son of God, our first response is a call to remember. But I think a second appropriate response is that we would worship Jesus for who he is. Not only do we celebrate and give thanks for what he has done, but he wants to receive your praise and worship, which is what we're going to do right now. 
as they get set up, two more things very quickly just to remind you of. Jesus says, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. I see family, I pray that we would be in a pattern. I pray that the, our way of life would be a daily listening to God. I think there's two prominent ways in which we listen. We listen through Scripture. We, we read Scripture. God speaks to us through Scripture, but that listening part is, our, is the act of reflection or meditation. We don't just read the words, but we stop and ask, Lord, what are you saying to me? And you chew on Scripture. And through that process, God illuminates what he's saying. But we also realize that, that God speaks to us through prayer. Do you know that prayer is a dialogue, not a monologue? Do you realize that prayer is two ways? How many good conversations are one way? It's not a conversation. No, but prayer is what we bring to God and it is also being in the presence of God. God, what are you saying to me? Speak to me now. Through your word, yes. Brothers and sisters, I pray that we would be in the pattern or the habit of listening. Because when we listen, we receive, and then we know. We know what our next steps are. Fourth and finally, there's a lost and dying world that needs to hear about this son. You don't have to go to the mission field. You live in it. You don't have to go flying somewhere. You already live here. I don't know the latest statistics, but I do know Port Angeles has lots of dying people, has lots of lost people, has lots of, I believe that what Jesus says, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Brothers and sisters, I pray that we would be faithful harvesters. There are people wondering, is there a God that actually loves me? And they can know that because you tell them. So let's sing together. Let's stand to our feet in one final song in closing because here's the deal. In the end, when it's all said and done, if we have Jesus, then we have everything. If we have gained Jesus, the Son of God, then we've received everything we need for life and for godliness.